Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for having stayed at the Aquatel Atlantis. We hope you've enjoyed your visit with us 20 leagues beneath the sea. A resort hotel under the sea. We at the Bendix Corporation believe it will happen, and before too many tomorrows go by. Just as you now drive around the countryside in the family car, one day you'll sightsee around the ocean floor in an amazing aquacopter. And the family car is in for some pretty big changes, too. Imagine just tapping the floorboard for stop and go, or electronic push-button driving. The Tomorrow People at Bendix are helping to make these things possible, and more in the areas of national defense, aviation, space, oceanics, automotive, and manufacturing, to search, to discover, to develop, to erase all boundaries of space and thought. This is Bendix, the Tomorrow People. For podcast number 115, which is entitled In the Event of, I chose Raymond Scott's Futurama for the Bendix Corporation as a kind of uh, foreshadowing of what I'd like to talk about, which is death in the podcast. And this, you might call it a skein, a mosaic, possibly even a weaving, which is a very contemporary term of ideas about death. And it is occasioned by the death this week of someone whom I know well, the death in the Foresight Saga at the end of the um, kind of lengthy add-on to the Foresight Saga that Galsworthy wrote and published in 1928 entitled A Modern Comedy, in which Soames Forsyth dies and his death scene, which was the absolute last shot and seen in the 1967 BBC heroic version of the Foresight Saga, all 26 episodes. The death of Soames Foresight, and also several things, believe it or not, that Rod Serling said about death. He didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. Death took him unawares on the operating table in uh, northern New York State, and uh, he did say, however, fairly soon before he died in what I think may be the last published interview of Serling, he said that as far as he was concerned, death was uh, extinction or something like that in which whatever was left of him would be kind of wandering around the universe as a kind of atom without any feeling or knowledge. In other words, um, perceptual annihilation of the Rod Serling self. And he said that plainly, and it's always a little striking because there are so many very positive um, lights within his work. And there's also this terribly strong dimension of uh, what some religions called karma, what Christians would probably call the accumulated warehousing of <clears throat> the slings and arrows, both of things done to and things done from the self. And um, in Serling's work, there is a almost a um, vengeful or a deeply disturbing note of the uh, accumulated selfhood that is judged and punished in a kind of purgatorial hell, with the emphasis on the last word, in uh, such uh, screenplays as... Um, Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator, which kind of ends before hell, but has the idea and also um, the ex 
extraordinary rare objects with Mickey Rooney and uh, Raymond Massey in Night Gallery third episode, and also the other way out uh, with that wonderful actress actor Ross Martin and Burl Ives also in the third season, and um, very much in Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, like Shadow Play and the one about the man who uh, has the escape clause, and it comes back again and again. And here was a man who was wrestling uh, with a tremendous urgency of uh, conceptuality and highly uh, felt that we reap what we sow almost way beyond the extent of our um, sowing. And in light of that, and in the light of uh, the death of someone I love very much, and in the light of the death which I myself crave, I'd like to speak in a sort of vulnerable fashion today. I, I guess if that's the word. I was so struck by Marilyn Phipps Kettlewell's um, – she lives in Cambridge, Mass., and has edited uh, and introduced the collected poems of Jack Kerouac in the New Library of America edition, which I cannot recommend to you highly enough, especially Mexico City Blues. But you can get all these independently or almost all of them independently, but it's still worth it, and her introduction is fabulous. And she was interviewed, um, and she described – and what I'm doing in this podcast is I'm trying to tie together the vulnerability and the what she calls the undressedness or the nakedness of the communicator and the artist and the poet uh, and the preacher, in my opinion – with the uh, whole question of the death of the self, not in the sort of will death of the bad part of the concupiscence of the self, which is often the way the uh, Christian writers uh, seem to understand it, kind of a massive death of one part of the self, but I'm really talking about a sort of um, death of the of the whole entire um, ego, the entire perceptual individual, which is not a moral struggle, although it does... Um, include a moral struggle. And I'm talking about death in light of this vulnerability. So what I mean to say is that in the brief podcast, which is kind of a test of communication, I'm trying to be as naked, to use Phipps Kettlewell's uh, description of uh, Kerouac's uh, approach, which I've talked about before. I envied her, really, the chance to say these things, to write these things, and to express these things which are in his writing. And it's because that's something that I've uh, been so helped by in my own understanding of what preaching is. And by the way, the big problem, there are so many problems facing uh, Christianity in the West and in America. And I could, you know, I don't want to talk about all that. That's a huge amount of internet space. But let's uh, let's say one thing, that uh, when you do go to church today, for the most part, you, you generally run into a demoralized clergy. I understand why. I've been a demoralized clergyman, as they say in Northern Ireland, um, member of the clergy, as we say today. I've been a demoralized member of the clergy, and I know what it is to uh, feel that everything is against one and that you're operating almost entirely in your own strength, and you can't get by, whether it's today's particular pressures or the pressures of the 1960s, the pressures of the 1990s, you cannot get by this in your own strength. To really serve God, if I may use that word, in our generation, we are absolutely... um, required to uh, have an attached sense of call to the works of God. As my friend David Morse once spoke, he said, uh, I'll only hear a clergyman or a minister, he would have said, a preacher who seems to actually believe that he or she is part of the eternal purposes of God in my life now. Well, that was a disarming and uh, absolutely, it had the 
absolute ring of authenticity. Um, uh, so you go to church today, and with few exceptions, you see sincere, overweight men and women who are obviously demoralized and whether we could say gifted, that's not really the point. You can have a person with relatively, um, we might call them minor league gifts in a human sense and are brilliant prophets and priests and kings of the inspired word of God. It is not really a matter of uh, one's inherited uh, or occupational or circumstantial gifts um, or legacies and uh, advantages. It's far more spiritual and ultimately vertical than that. And yet I see little of it. And this is, uh, part of that would always be the ability to put one's own entire uh, sort of self at the availability of a call that was in itself joyful and in itself meaningful and in itself completely and totally um, absorbing and interesting and finally giving back such that the gifts you gave from the ego were completely matched by the gifts you received both in and from the ultimate reality of the self and God. Now, um, so I'm trying to be a little bit, you might say, undressed here uh, because I really long for death. I can understand very much why people fantasize about it. I have no desire to commit suicide at this point because of um, all sorts of reasons I can to stay alive, but I do in a human sense, albeit in a skin, in those 40 buffalo or oxen hides that uh, Meister Eckhart spoke of, that uh, I met Donald Spoto once, by the way, at length, Uh, but all those buffalo hides that separate you from the reality of who you really are. Remember, Flannery O'Connor wrote, as uh, Phipps Kettlewell says in her intro to The Collected Poems of Kerouac, you write, she said, I write in order to to find out what I know. And what I think we all know is that this um, particular uh, facade of human existence is in fact a comedy. Uh, I believe that Galsworthy was absolutely right in that statement, which comes towards the very end of his novel, his last foresight novel I've already mentioned, called A Modern Comedy, in which Michael Montfleur's husband, the character <clears throat> and member of Parliament, He claims that uh, it took him a long time to discover that the world and life is a comedy, but he'll get there. Now, interestingly enough, as I read that, I realized you don't get there. It's a tremendous insight, a tremendous insight, but um, getting there is rare. But if it's a comedy and if it's all an elaborate role play of uh, egos that are attempting to find some kind of a place to stand, uh, some kind of a a place in a secondary object, whether it's a fame, prosperity, a woman, a man, love, a relationship, a child, a parent, all of that, it's, um, it's all on sand. And so the fantastic desire to be that kind of floating person after you die, you know, they all tell you this, they all tell you this, and I've been told it directly by people who've experienced it after they've experienced it. When they die on the operating table, they suddenly see to their great surprise and at first amazement um, the the pain ends and they're now floating on the ceiling. They're sort of there and they're not there. And they look down and they see themselves and they say, wait a minute, that's me. And uh, you might say that that which is really them is now detached from this body and yet not entirely detached from what one religion calls the subtle self. Uh, let's call it the sort of the, the, the Jacob Marley things that I often mention, all the chains you've wrought in life and you're sort of floating out there like that 
character, what is it, Uncle Eustace in, uh, golly, uh, Huxley's um, novel, Time Must Have a Stop When a Man Dies of a Very Sudden, Unexpected Heart Attack, a highly aesthetic and extremely sophisticated, portly gentleman dies in the midst of all his interests and his paintings and his, and his etchings and he, his wealth, and he finds himself in this situation drifting, drifting, drifting until he finds residence in, a, in an art collector's child on a French road crammed with refugees fleeing the Nazi army invading France in 1940. Uh, it's a very real and very, I should say, compelling and has a ring of something very deep in uh, the episode involving what happens to Uncle Eustace as he floats away after his heart attack. Well, I see that. I'd like to be there. I'd like to be in that place, and I'd like to leave behind, quote, Paul Zoll, end of quote. Ugh. I was once um, giving a speech somewhere in a former Archbishop of Canterbury. It's actually Lord Coggan, Donald Coggan, who was not dead then, and I gave a speech, uh, which I thought was just terrific in front of a large group of people, and he was there, and I was aware of it, and I was pitching a little bit of it to him, you know how you do, and uh, falsely, and I was pitching too much of it to him in my heart, and he was recently retired as uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, very fine man, very good man, and we'd known one another long before, but um, I was pitching it to him, there's no question, and I said uh, in a very provocative way, oh, I'm embarrassed to mention it, I said to him afterwards, well, Archbishop, uh, what did you think? <laughs> Don't ever ask that question of someone, because it's all about you, it's, it's all about me, and he said, well, he said, I, I, thought, um, I thought it was quite impressive, and then he said, um, however, you know, sometimes I thought to myself, you know, I'd, I think I'd, did I really want to hear all this from Paul Zoll, he said, or did I want to hear in the silence of my own heart something that was a little bit, something a little bit different from just simply what Paul Zoll has to say about this, that, and the other thing. Well, that comment was enough to send me into two weeks of total depression. And I avouched that to someone the day after I left. It was a something I'd always hoped I would do, this particular invitation to speak in this particular environment. And when he said that, I mean, you can imagine, oh, well, I wanted to die right there on the spot. But I didn't really take advantage of uh, Donald Coggins' great wisdom at that point. I should have. I should have said, you know, I'm giving up. I'm resigning right now. I've had it. I'm, I'm giving this up. What you say is so true. What you say is so powerful. You cut me to the quick, to quote the people in Jerusalem whom uh, St. Peter addressed uh, on Pentecost. They were cut to the heart. I was cut to the heart, but not enough. I should have just resigned there and then and uh, uh, asked of whoever I was serving under as a bishop then. I think it was a very sympathetic bishop <clears throat> and simply said, would you, would you let me take a year off right now and uh, have a, have a, a, you know, pay something into my pension minimal and consider me still one of yours, but I need a year off to recover and to find out the truth of what Donald Coggan has just told me, but I didn't do it. I should have. Um, I did it later. Had to. Wanted to. Needed to. I said recently to, um, I think, I thought to myself of a bishop who's dealing in a very, very um, impossible situation. And this is no one who's listening to this uh, podcast, but someone whom I know somewhere and it was dealing with an impossible situation uh, involving some canonical changes in the denomination. And I said, how can you serve under this particular you, 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 under this particular damocles sword, which has nothing to do with you personally, but how could you serve in a, in a kind of a, a, a certain situation where there's a, 
kind of um, fr- freeze on free expression, a kind of a kind of built-in uh, canonical freeze, a chilling of. Uh, Expression, you know, the kind of thing when Oscar Wilde went to jail uh, in Reading Jail years and years ago, uh, and uh, it's said that maybe 2,000 uh, English members of the sort of quote upper class went to France within weeks of his sentencing because there had been a chill, a mammoth chill came over English uh, prosecuting and English legal practice after his conviction. And the cultural mood uh, embodied uh, something they had to escape. And I said to myself, to myself, why doesn't he resign? Not because he has anything to resign for, but how can you actually how can you serve freely in a situation of chill? Because any kind of chill, if you're preaching or teaching or uh, writing or being yourself, which uh, actually says they're coming, you know, they're coming to get you, uh, it, it chills your expression. It makes me not want to say what I honestly think. And if that's the fact, how could you be, create art? How could you, you know, I was thinking of, as soon as I heard that, I thought of that wonderful artist. Now, I want to say Otto Dix, but I I'm really not. I'm, oh, Emil Nolde. I'm thinking about Emil Nolde, who did those uh, paintings that were what Antarctic Kunst, d- decadent art. Uh, he was um, labeled by the National Socialists as decadent, and several of his uh, New Testament paintings were lifted out and put in the famous Munich exhibit, which is now notorious. And I have a beautiful book here, beautiful, uh, very well illustrated and high quality book about all the documentation. Only a German scholar today could do it. Uh, all the documentation related to the famous decadent art exhibit under the National Socialists in Munich and uh, München. And uh, um, uh, his paintings, um, Emil Nolde's, especially the one of, I think, the Nativity, possibly the one of the Annunciation, with their very, very definite uh, Jewish characteristics in Mary and Joseph and Christ, these were considered decadent by the National Socialists. And he was a, he really was um, on the list. He really was on the list. And he didn't he go to some place called Zebold, I think that's the name of the place. He finally sat out the war, he sat out the Nazi period period, uh, doing landscapes. I think he did mainly seascapes and landscapes in somewhere off near Schleswig-Holstein in the Danish border. Uh, you can go to it now. I think it's called the Emil Nolde Stift, and you can Stift on whatever it is, and you can see his paintings. And he sat out the war by doing non-representational landscapes that are absolutely extraordinarily powerful and good. Um, but he, his, his whole creative um, arc had been entirely chill by his being lifted up by one group as being decadent. And um, so I said to this fellow in my heart, why don't you resign, you, you know, you, uh, do something else until the freeze is over. Well, um, I'm trying to say what I really think, and I think that dying is a wonderful thing, and I think that dying is something to be absolutely coveted, but not actually done to one by oneself, nor to walk in front of a, uh, of a of a falling canvas as Fleur does in that great chapter, Fires. I have it right here, chapter 13 in Swan Song, the last novel in novella, you might call it, long, long novella in Galsworthy's A Modern Comedy. Do you want to stand in front of the falling painting? No, um, Soames dashes in front of it. But you welcome death because death is this uh, very happy development, if you're ready, like George Harrison was, 
whenever you're ready, whenever you're re- when you're ready to face it, because you're laying down Paul Zoll, and that is something devoutly to be wished. All this discriminating ego, the judging, condemning self. What did he say in Matthew, uh, in Luke 6, and is it Matthew 7? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Condemn not, lest ye be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will be given back to. Uh, the whole picture of the life expressed by Christ as the only way to be human is uh, to judge not, to condemn not. And I've got a terrible problem with judgments and opinions, just a terrible problem. 24-7, all these judgments and opinions. And interestingly enough, note that the Lord, he doesn't say, he doesn't emphasize, you know, you may, well, the thing you're judging, because everybody has something different. I mean, listen, look, you who are listening, you judge something else. I mean, remember Tom Cruise, the character in that wonderful, is it Magnolia? Um, he, he, he's judging everything. You are judging something. There's a person in your life who you judge the living daylights out of, or there's a group of people who you judge, or a kind of behavior you judge, a certain form of uh, appearance that I judge. You know, I drive around the town where I live, and I'm judging this, and I'm judging that, and I'm judging the people that are cutting down oak trees, and I'm judging this group and that group, and this idea and that idea, and all I need to do is go at the mall, and I'm judging a million people, the rich people, and the poor people, and the people in between, and the overweight people and the, you know, the thin as a rail women and the, we were in a restaurant the other night that is really wonderful. I think it was, I think it's a, I think it's a steakhouse. We love to go there. Um, but boy, did I sit in judgment. Mary turned to me at one point and she said, you know, isn't it amazing the sheer numbers? This, this is like a magnet for overweight people. And it, it is. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, but I mean, for heaven's sake, I mean, look at yourself. Think about it. Look at pictures of yourself at the New Orleans Jazz Fest in late April 2007, standing in front of the mango sherbet booth and look at yourself and, boom, you know, the Pillsbury Doughboy, that thing in, you know, the Michelin tire guy and Ghostbusters. Woo, woo. Well, um, that's absolutely, that's the Futurama. That's Raymond Scott's Futurama from Bendix, and that's my Futurama. And I'm not there now, but I've been there, and I could get there tomorrow once again as easy as pa. And um, he said in the midst of his uh, almond croissant at the French bakery uh, in downtown in his Florida town, the uh, thing about death is so powerful is that it's more than imagery. The Paul Zoll of my life is really a very judgmental, angry, difficult, impossible person who gets completely in the way of uh, the rage, pain, and fear, rage, pain, and fear, rage, pain, and fear. And this person gets totally in the way of all the good and the fine and the positive and the affirming and the loving and the encouraging that is also a part of me as well. And it's that part, you know, lay this burden down. Um, As I said, lay that burden down. Uh, The thing about uh, Christianity is it's so deep on this front, and yet it almost always takes it away at the moment of fruition. I was thinking about John Bunyan, who expresses this powerful laying down of the John Bunyan. Remember his man, uh, Christian, uh, the the man who wakes up with the burden on his shoulders. Save me. Who will deliver me? Save me. And it's more important to him that he be saved than he even stay at home with his wife and children because he can't even live. He can't even stand up. He can't even get up and face his wife and his children, let alone himself, until the burden is uh, taken from his body. And the burden falls away. 
and uh, at the cross, it, it, it goes into the to the empty tomb and it falls away. And that great, uh, uh, I was listening to some steel guitar gospel the other day. Bill Bowman and Adrian, this is for you. You encouraged me to look at some steel um, some steel guitar gospel and uh, lay that burden down. I th- lay my burden down. Uh, and that's the power of uh, of the first section of. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and he really deviates from it and goes into the murky depth of taking it back up, which is what uh, people who are uh, sanctified or interested in sanctification or discipleship or the next step of Christian growth do. And I praise Tully and Tavidian for not doing this in his current uh, work. I praise him for it because he's not putting the burden back, having taken it off. And uh, this is what Christianity at its depth, the gospel, provides, laying of the burden down. No wonder that Bunyan is given a very, very high mark by Galsworthy when Fleur, in one of her points, she's not an intellectual, but she's married to one, and uh, um, her husband is told by Fleur that, uh, well, she'd like to be like John Bunyan because he's a positive person. Remember what Kerouac said, I woke up on a John Bunyan morning. It's the most positive thing he can say in the Cascades when he gets ready to, to, to come down, to come back to earth. And he's uh, been up there on Desolation Peak. I think it's in the beginning of Desolation Angels, which uh, is the continuity or the sequel to uh, Dharma Bums, and he wakes up on a John Bunyan morning. And interestingly enough, I noticed that in Powell and Pressburger's film, Matter of Life and Death in Heaven, which has uh, Raymond Massey in a lead role in it, by the way, John Bunyan makes an appearance. And John Bunyan, obviously for the average sort of English person of the period when that movie was made or Galsworthy was writing, and these were not religious or Church of England going people for the most part, these creators. And and yet uh, Bunyan gets more than a free pass. He is He is seen as an honest optimistic, hopeful, real, everyday man. Vera Britton said that of him. He's someone to study now, by the way, and never forget the amazing 1910 biography by William Hale White, a.k.a. um, Mark Rutherford of, uh, of John Bunyan. Never forget the honest positive, open man who laid his burden down. That's what, that's what we're looking for when we die. We want to lay the burden of the self down, but we then don't want to take it back up, which is what everybody seems to do, and live in a <clears throat> welter of, of, of really unconscious self-righteousness. I was reading a, a headline in the New York Times. I, didn't, I was too cheap to, to charge the website to the, to the, to the link, and uh, typical of me, and I, that's what I want to lay down, that cheap given you will be given back don't be cheap about websites said mom said mother blames herself mother after son's suicide blames herself and her church i said oh no you know another bashing but what happens is that the church in a way with its demoralized clergy and its message that has so often been a kind of turning of law from grace to law a turning of grace into law uh, there it uh, Uh, I'm sure if I was not cheap enough and had laid down my burden to actually read the article, I'm sure that in her mind, something about the church's teachings, whatever the circumstances of this young, of this son's suicide, is incipient in the church's teaching, which is exactly the opposite of Christ's teaching. Judge not lest you be judged. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given back to you. Condemn not 
that you be not condemned without any reference to the object of the condemnation. Because as I said, we all have them. It's a reference to you, the judger, and you, the condemner, not the thing or the group or the person condemned. And that is just, that is the pure essence of Christianity and, and of Christ's own message. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And it's a great pity, you know, I don't really have much of an interest at this point. No, no, no. I don't have much of a consuming desire to change the world now or to express that message. I keep thinking of what Psalms Foresight says in, I think it's in, uh, in the one about uh, the silver spoon uh, during the course of a lawsuit. I think he says to his son-in-law, you're wrong if you think anything you say and anything you do will make any difference. You're wrong if you think anything you say and anything you do will make any difference. I tend towards that opinion, although some of you listening will say, well, I wouldn't be listening to you, Paul, if, if you would believe that. And you are saying this. And let me say this finally. The reason I did the podcast is I said to myself this morning, you know, I don't have anything to say. I just have nothing to say this weekend. I have absolutely nothing to say. And interestingly enough, this is, this is the living example of what I'm saying. The moment I said it, I immediately, the idea for this podcast came into my head. I said to Mary, you know, Mary, I just have nothing to say right now. I have no new message. I have no word that is, that is in my heart as of this moment. And the moment I said it and I wrote it down in a journal, I keep a journal, I keep on Guatemalan paper. It's a wonderful discipline. And uh, the very moment I said it, I, the, the podcast came just like that. So the moment you die, the moment you live. The moment you stop, the moment you begin. And on that note, I give you another memorable picture of what God hath wrought in a human life when the burden is laid down and uh, the new life and the new leap, the walking and the leaping, praising God, actually takes over the creative and personal psychic process. Thank you very much. What makes a melon ball bounce? A melon ball bounce. A melon ball bounce. What makes a melon ball bounce? The ice cart taste of Sprite. Sprite makes the melon ball bounce. The melon ball bounce. The melon ball bounce. Sprite has the tingle that counts. Make a melon ball bounce with Sprite. Make a melon ball fizz with Sprite. Make a melon ball punch with Sprite. Make a melon ball float with Sprite. Make a melon ball float with Sprite. Imagine what you can do with Sprite. Create something new with Sprite. With a melon and a scoop. And a bottle of Sprite. You can make the prettiest drinks in sight. Sprite has the tingle that counts. Ice tart taste makes any drink bounce. Why not start with a melon ball bounce by a carton of Sprite tonight? Oh, honey, 